Welcome to episode 8 of Talking Musicology, a bi-monthly podcast where we discuss recent publications in the field of musicology and finish each episode with Research in the Round, our roundup of selected new musicological publications. My name is Stephen Graham and I'm here as ever with Liam Cagney. Howdy. Attempts to diversify, defend and even destroy cultural canons have accompanied these canons from the get-go. Such attempts have gathered steam over the past few decades of postmodern deconstruction, identity politics and post-colonial thought these being just some of the more notable staging posts of this struggle over inclusion and representation within and without the university. Within this discourse, for every Harold Bloom or Bernard Knox or Roger Scruton defending the Western canon as a vital filter of historical value, as a check on individual taste and a safeguard of social order, there's been an Eric Hobsbawm or Gayatri Spivak or in music a Susan McClary or a Richard Taruskin arguing for the constructed and artificial nature of traditions and canons, for a view of the canon as not only reflective, but also productive of what is inevitably a skewed social reality. These debates have, if anything, become more intense over the past couple of years, with initiatives on all sorts of fronts attempting to diversify or defend canons. The 2016 SOAS, that's School of Oriental and African Studies in London, based campaign to quote-unquote decolonize our minds, is highly notable here. This campaign saw students and lecturers attempting, in their own words, to desacralize European thinkers such as Plato, Locke and Kant, stopping them from being treated as unquestionable. If such thinkers were to be included on curricula, their work would be examined critically and in context alongside less prominent material. This is a fairly uncontroversial idea, you might think, particularly in the context of a famously famously post-colonial institution struggling with its roots as an imperial uh, endeavour. Not to the national press in Britain, however, where headlines sensationally cried white tears over the supposed attempt to exclude white European thought. Or to those on social media that saw this as yet another sad chapter in the descent into ad hominem identity politics they see as characteristic of the post-postmodern so-called snowflake generation. This campaign, in any case, is emblematic of similar struggles happening across academia and culture. Witness the 2015 Roads Must Fall protests in South Africa, whose campaign to remove a Cecil Rhodes statue from the University of Cape Town campus led to a wider movement to decolonize education in the country, or the 2016 petition in the Yale English Department to quote-unquote decolonize the curriculum. Music and musicology have themselves been implicated and involved in these struggles. As we can see in everything from the recent hashtag notation gate in Britain, where a fairly ill-conceived Guardian article by Charlotte Gill about the supposedly exclusionary nature of musical notation led to a huge, many-layered debate about the value of different modes of music within music education, to American academic Kendra Leonard's crowdsourced construction of a so-called music privilege walk. And we'll probably have more on these things uh, a little later in the podcast. This is the ground that Alejandro L. Madrid is working from in his article, Diversity, Tokenism, Non-Canonical Musics and the Crisis of the Humanities in U.S. Academia, which has just been published in the 2017, Volume 7, Number 2 issue of Journal of Music History Pedagogy. We'll be using Madrid's article in this episode of Talking Musicology as a starting point to engage in some of these broader issues. As will be clear, the distance between canon and colony, at least in some respects, is quite small. And in starting our discussion from the notion of canons and diversity, we won't have to go very far before we encounter themes such as privilege, identity politics and colonialism, as indeed is the case within Madrid's article itself. 
The terms of the debate queued up by Madrid's article and visible across the musical, musicological controversies alluded to above, and indeed in others, are therefore both broad and significant, encompassing in such a publicly visible way as they do really quite profound, pragmatic questions about who gets to study what and why in music curricula. In this respect, this whole debate might be seen as a bellwether, both of where the discipline of musicology stands with respect to inclusion and identity in 2017, and also of how or even if this standing and these attitudes filter out into the world as a public conversation. Does any of this matter, or is this just an, another intramural tribal struggle? So on to Madrid's article specifically. Professor of Musicology and Ethnomusicology at Cornell University, Madrid's research focuses on the intersection of modernity, tradition, and globalization in Latin American music, dance, and sound practices, in his own words. This can be seen, for example, in a 2012 book, Music in Mexico, which used fieldwork and interviews to analyze Mexican music culture through a transnational cultural lens. This focus means Madrid is clearly well-placed to write about diversity and canons, as he does in this article, where he offers a self-described polemical reflection, quote, on the relevance of curricular offerings at a moment of crucial institutional re-evaluation in US, U.S. academia from within a humanities, end quote, from within a humanities privileging department, that is Cornell University, that does not focus on the performance of Western art music, but instead emphasizes liberal arts and intellectual research agendas. In particular, Madrid argues against the reformist attempt to expand the canon, to include Ibero-American musics, seeing this as tokenistic, and instead recommends a trans-historical elective approach that questions why the canon exists in the first place. Liam, I wanted to open out the discussion of this article to you as soon as I could, so what do you make of it? It's hard to know where to begin with an article like this, which takes on such big issues, but I guess uh, maybe a good place, or a good way to start is by um, reflecting on one's own uh, experience. So I think all of us uh, will recognise how positive the attempts at canon reformulation have been over the past couple of decades, say, or longer, as you pointed out, with uh, deconstruction, post-colonial studies, feminist theory, and so on. And uh, I know that when I was teaching at the School of Music in UCD last year, uh, teaching a, a module called Music in Ireland, uh, these uh, different efforts did inform the type of approach we took when designing that module. So there were four strands. There was traditional Irish music, there's popular music, rock music, uh, there was medieval music, and then there was classical music. And we tried to give a kind of holistic picture of uh, the development of music within a cultural perspective in Ireland that way, with a, an historical uh, point of view. But it's it's quite quickly that you, you run into sort of issues this way. I remember, for example, at one point, playing an example of a recent uh, piece of music that came out in Ireland from a group called uh, Riza, uh, which my brother, uh, the percussionist Eamon Cagney, is a member of. And uh, the leader of this group is Neil Tsumbu. He's a Congolese refugee, and uh, he's an exceptional musician, exceptionally talented on the guitar, and so on. I played this example anyway um, to my students, and I told them, well, this is Irish music. This is Irish music in 2016. And um, one or two of the students really took issue with that. I remember one of the students very adamantly stating, this is not Irish music. But you could argue either either side of it. And it's I use this example just to kind of illustrate in my own experience uh, the efforts to 
to broach these topics and how I don't know if we will ever really settle what for example Irishness is or what Western music is or should be and so on it always seems to spark off conflict and I think that that could be seen in Madrid's article um, in the type of kind of heated language he uses at times so although he pursues a, a particular argument which we'll get to in a little while I just first wanted to mention that I think some of his statements are a bit unmeasured and a bit hyperbolic uh, for example there seems to be a kind of obsession with not just in this article but more broadly with culture wars and crisis and these this kind of violent sort of uh, imagery of war and battle and I think that's kind of telling this is like a territorial dispute in some ways as you've as you've pointed out and I think that's always how it always has been and how it always will be and if we look at what the canon maybe ultimately aims to produce which is exceptional artists exceptional composers or at least that's what Harold Bloom would say such artists and composers form themselves through engaging with their forebears in a sort of a battle in this sort of attempt to really achieve distinction in, in their, their area so maybe maybe the whole area the whole study of history towards um, becoming a part of it always is going to involve these kind of violent uh, turf wars so you picked up on the territorial aspects of these debates, and I think that plays out in some of the examples I alluded to. So in the Charlotte Gill Guardian article, for example, which discusses uh, musical literacy in music education um, in schools in the UK and describes uh, what she sees as a more kind of plural and supposedly inclusive approach, which wouldn't limit education or even anchor education in any kind of traditional notational models but would instead open up to aural skills and so on as if these skills are not already um, right in the center of um, music education in schools that kind of that kind of arguments which makes some valid points about privilege and elitism and so on quickly ends up skewed and pushed into an extreme and becomes a kind of a token of a kind of a tribal way of thinking which is one tribe invading the space of another tribe and and wanting to kind of colonize or take over that space. So the other extreme, led by people like Ian Pace and other notable figures, musicologists, performers, scholars, musicians, and many other luminaries from Simon Rattle onwards, signed this letter of response to the article, which tries to say that basically we shouldn't romanticize musical illiteracy and instead see the value of Western music notation and and not reject it as a token of elitism, but instead see Charlotte Gill's approach itself as kind of inverted elitism, as a kind of an inverted snobbery. And whilst there's threads running through both camps, which make a certain degree of sense to me, these debates in, in heading towards either extreme just remove the possibility of, of meaningful kind of dialogue and meaningful debate and quickly just become um, tribalistic kind of missile launching to use it, an unfortunate metaphor. Right. No, no, I, I think you're right and uh, I think they detract from the debate actually. It kind of becomes harder to really enter into a dialogue when this it just turns into name calling or on Twitter yeah. or, or something like that. Um, people aren't really listening to each other. But yeah, so you mentioned uh, Madrid's proposal in this article, 
Um, so from what I understand, he, he mentions a couple of different ways in which he, he intends to, or he suggests a couple of ways of using Ibero-American music with regard to the canon. So just to read out his, his closing sentence here, he says, I would like to use Ibero-American musics in their historically controversial and contentious relation to Western art music, an imaginary or a real one, depending on how we may want to look at it in order to question the very values that prevent our academic work to be truly relevant in the cultural wars that surround us. So this means using Ibero-American musics or minority musics kind of in the fashion of a, a minor literature like the concept of deleuze Guattari, something which we bring into the kind of field of music in order to change uh, the general kind of presuppositions, presuppositions we use, <laughs> uh, if if I understand correctly, it's a little bit woolly, but he does give an example of at Cornell how how they implemented this. Uh, do you want to? Yeah. I mentioned yeah. that. Or um, well, what's what's interesting about that closing claim is that it, yeah, it can it can feel a little bit woolly. It can feel a little bit kind of typical kind of buzzwordification of of uh, musicology. It's the kind of uh, diversity agenda kind of thing, um, where it's it's right. paying lip service to inclusion. But what's interesting to me about this article is that it, it kind of explicitly goes against that, that kind of tokenistic um, inclusivity, where you might just simply expand the canon to include different kinds of music. Instead, he wants to um, reject, or not so much reject the canon, but examine the very premise of how the canon came to be formed, and use different kinds of music, like Ibero-American music to put into dialogue the very notion of stable canon with um, music that kind of has, have existed traditionally outside that canon. So it wouldn't be an expanded curriculum. Instead, it would be a, a kind of a, a reorganized and rethought curriculum based on what he calls trans-historical and trans-cultural premises. So it wouldn't be, um, for example, it wouldn't be a music history course that would go from point A, let's say, uh, medieval music, to point B, Baroque, point C, point D, ending in a kind of a teleological uh, sweep uh, in the 20th century or 21st century. Instead, this trans-historical approach would see classes going to and fro across music history, putting different structures of, I guess, power and um, culture into dialogue with each other so maybe you might look at for example music publishing music patronage in the 17th and 18th centuries and compare that to how the music business and music industry works in the 20th and 21st centuries and um, so look, look at those different historical moments within the context of each other rather than separating them out in a curriculum which would go in a very strict chronological way and similarly taking a transcultural approach which would again look at western and non-western musics in Concert, so kind of in context of each other, and seeing what that kind of seeing what that kind of mixture might do to um, student learning experience. So in those ways, it's it's kind of interesting. And in his final call to move beyond the kind of again what he calls the kind of diversity agenda into a kind of a true inclusivity, that call can seem kind of woolly. But in the context of his very concrete claims and descriptions of what a different kind of music history curriculum might look like notwithstanding the fact his his kind of um, descriptions get a little bit woolly and a little bit buzzwordy and a little bit hand-wringy, notwithstanding all that stuff, I think he's on fairly solid ground in making his his claim and his case. Where it does become complicated is in his discussion of utility. So he wants to reject the idea of humanity subjects like musicology as being 
based on a utilitarian ideology, but then he, well, he wants nevertheless to say that musicology can be useful to the humanities as it struggles against a kind of a STEM agenda in the 21st century. So there's, there's a weird kind of moment there towards the end. There's also a desperate, I know I'm kind of going to and fro here myself, but um, I think these are some of the important points of this article. As well as that um, moment towards the end where it gets a little bit kind of having the cake and eating it too, there's also a tendency in this article however concrete he is in his claims about what music history might look like in terms of a new curriculum and a new kind of intellectual framework, he again tends to kind of sweep things into polar extremes in the way that we were saying a few minutes ago, things get, they become kind of territorial disputes. So here what happens is he talks about this new model of music history and how it would take a critical transcultural, transhistorical approach uh, in contrast to the supposed um, blunt static imposition of a field of um, knowledge that supposedly characterized music history up to this point. Now, I just don't recognize that model of music history. I don't think any decent teacher of music history, whether we think of someone in 1923 or 1992 or 2009, however white, privileged and male their perspective might have been, if they were um, an interesting teacher and if they were a kind of a critical thinker, in their own right and within their own kind of limits. They never would have just wanted to impose a set of knowledge on their students. They never w would have wanted to convey an idea of the canon as a stable set of fixed masterworks there for purely objective transcendent reasons. Instead, at least speaking from my experience and speaking from experience of knowing peers who teach quite maybe traditional music history programs, there's always a critical point of view being and negotiated with. There's always a kind of a, a critical stance towards the canon, even if the canon is being subscribed to, it can nevertheless be critically subscribed to. So I'm not sure why things get so polarized within this article in the same way that, as you were saying, things often get territorial and tribal in these kinds of debates. No, it's a good point. And I had exactly the same thought with regard to um, um, how he's saying now he's proposing something new, which is to teach history in this critical manner. As far as I can see, history is in any good music department, at least taught in a critical way. Uh, nobody is uh, asking students to, to just sort of accept accept an historical picture without really going into the details about how it came about and so on. But I guess it fits with this sort of agenda to paint, and he's explicit about doing so, this agenda to paint uh, the humanities in the West as uh, what I think he uses the phrase like the cultural wing, cultural arm of, of Western imperialism or something like that, um, which would make uh, Western music history or Western notated music history uh, sort of by proxy uh, an imperialist mm -hmm. en enterprise um, and then so that in this sort of uh, Manichaean black and white view the new proposal is for something that's moving away from this and being critical but yeah I think that, that the the two alternatives are too I don't know a little mm. bit crudely drawn here and uh, yeah, there is a little bit of a, a little bit of an unnuanced view of history or what history is presented here. He uses the, the phrase somewhere, the chronological invention we have come to call history. Yeah. In in other words, there's no such thing as history. It's just this in cultural invention, which I think some people might find a little bit. Yeah, difficult. and in the same respect, he 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 also implies 
musical form or aesthetics might be irrelevant to questions of how music gets its value and, and has meaning for audiences. So in talking about how one element of the curriculum, that is the music theory element, might be redesigned in Cornell or has been redesigned, he talks about this class led by Andrew Hicks, which is going to be called Elements of Music. Um, and it focuses on listening and aims to provide students with aural skills, basic technical vocabulary and a conceptual framework for thinking about and interrogating the many factors that have shaped both the sounds themselves and our experience of them. He goes on and says, the class is organized around five axes, de defining music, pitch and timbre, harmony, rhythm and form, that from the outset seem to follow on traditional understandings of music theory. The goal of the class, however, he says, is to deconstruct the idea of how one performatively listens to those elements by taking the student's experiences as a critical point of departure instead of imposing a pre-existing idea of what those elements may be or mean. Professor Hicks does that by exploring the liminal zones, geographic margins, and historically political struggles in which traditional understandings of music, harmony, pitch, timbre, rhythm, and form are problematized. Finally, this, cri this critical approach, he says, allows for the trans-historical and trans-cultural study of theoretical aspects of music and thus permits students to approach a critical discussion of music not in terms of universal aesthetic criteria or objective knowledge, but rather in terms of the specific codes of behavior, political struggles, and uses that give music its historical and transcultural, transhistorical rather, meanings. I think that basically sums up uh, the argument. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's just the wing it. of the argument about the transcultural and trans, yeah, you're right, transhistorical approach. I mean, so what do you make of that? Very problematic to say that anything is transhistorical. Why should we have a privileged view of what history is at this point in time? I'm sure people a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago in certain parts of the world may have thought the same thing. And nowadays we look back at them and say, oh, well, how wrong were they? So <laughs> there, there's yeah there there are a lot of things you could say about it i mean this is a, a western viewpoint again and we're projecting it onto the world at large and onto history at large so how is that not also cultural imperialism um if you really wanted to go back and question all all categories and concepts then maybe we should erase the concept of music and say well why do we treat this thing we call music just hourly like Surely there are some other cultures in the world who don't consider mm -hmm. it so. They consider it, as an ethnomusicologist might tell us in detail, as part of a whole social context which involves dance and ceremony and that type of thing as well. Maybe they could tell us about music rather than us um, creating this discipline called musicology, which we then project everywhere. I mean, eventually, I don't know, eventually it gets to the point where everything is disappearing and all that solid is turning <laughs> into air. Maybe this is just a, this is a malady that's uh, been with us for yeah. some decades. Maybe but it's, it's funny, isn't it? Because what he's saying here, um, it seems to claim a kind of a radical dimension. Whereas, as you say, it's still premised on all these different intellectual ideas, such as the very notion of musicology as a discipline which looks at musical sound primarily and how it gains meaning. And it's also privileging notions like history, trans history, etc. So it's rather than being kind of radical, it's kind of reformist in the way it, it it seems to want to kind of disclaim, if you like. So it there still seems to be a bit of a contradiction there, possibly. Um, it's it's also just it's a baby in bathwater situation. 
universal aesthetic criteria, objective knowledge. I mean, I don't know who would have ever claimed universal aesthetic criteria or objective knowledge on behalf of Western music theory. Now, that's not to say, of course, that there haven't been practitioners of that theory who have seen it in much more universal and objective through through much more universal and objective lenses. I mean, particularly in the 19th century, if we're to believe um, primary sources and so on, there was much more of a sense of aesthetic theory standing in as a kind of a universal epistemology, if you like. So West aesthetic criteria based on Western music, particularly Western classical instrumental music, did seem to want to claim some kind of universal standing as a kind of a, you know, an abstract figuring of the universe or something. So, so there is that at the root of certain forms of um, music aesthetics. So it's not to it's not to ourselves throw the baby out with the bathwater and say that no one's ever thought these things. But it is just to say that I think Charles Rosen had an a similar kind of response to the new musicology, where he said that no one ever actually looked at music at a remove from context. No one ever actually saw the notes on the page as the text, as the be all and end all. Right. And I, I guess I would just have a similar response to Madrid here, which is to say that however much we might see traditional music theory as wanting to claim universal or supposedly objective grounds, it rarely kind of did so in a straightforward way. And in him pushing it to an extreme like that, he's, he's throwing out the baby with the bathwater. I wonder if there is a sort of desire, conscious or unconscious, to, well, eradicate this sort of Western dominated uh, curriculum and to create a curriculum that's as global as possible. I mean, Madrid may even uh, agree that that's a desirable outcome and we'll all have our own opinions on that. I would say, though, that for a Western music department, there's no reason why Western music history shouldn't be sort of like the frame of reference by which other things are defined because being realistic that's all we can really do we have our place and time and we have our history we have this thousand years or so behind us in which a lot of musical developments have happened and to wish it otherwise is to want to rewrite history in some ways um, I know that there are so many problems with that about who gets excluded from the historical picture and that's why I mentioned at the start that over the past couple of decades attempts at diversifying or what he would call this tokenistic mm -hmm. uh, diversification of the canon in my view have been quite healthy and they've brought up female composers from history Elizabeth Jacquet de la Guerre for example this French composer from the time of Louis XIV who was very prominent at the time and subsequently got kind of brushed out of history but now recently in the past decade or two she's uh, more attention has been given to her music um, so I think we are kind of making progress in these ways and I just believe personally there's no reason for us not to be able to focus on what are in my view masterpieces and what who are in my view geniuses from our historical tradition um, but some people think there are no such things as masterpieces mm -hmm. or geniuses. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's look, it's very complicated because obviously those things are loaded up with all sorts of privilege and, and exclusionary kind of um, dimensions. And, you know, speaking as someone who very much operates within a curriculum which is ever evolving and expanding and even changing fundamentally in the ways that he's describing Cornell is changing, so not just expanding in terms of inclusive inclusivity, but actually being reframed in terms of its intellectual premises and how it looks at history. 
you know, I'm speaking mm-hmm. as someone who would sign up to many of the things he recommends. It's just that it's just that, as we've said, things get so easily skewed to either extreme that I'm just not sure how helpful it is. And having said that, I wouldn't want it just to become a kind of a um, a kind of a postmodern pluralism where everyone gets to have their say and then everyone goes home happy. It's it's good to get angry and it's good to have heated debate, but I haven't seen much much of illumination from either side really in this in this whole debate. I mean, maybe this is the point at which to bring in some of the the context here. So. Um, the Charlotte Gill article which we've both been alluding to and then also maybe um, the Kendra Leonard thing, the music privilege walk have you seen this? Uh, no, I thought you were going to say the Harvard um, curriculum oh, yeah. for yeah, yeah, undergraduates yeah. where um, students can now go through a whole undergraduate program at Harvard without being able to read music and there was a lot of debate about the place of music theory in in the curriculum and that yeah. type of thing but no, I, sorry what Yeah, was no, there? I mean so that so that's an interesting um, moment that's happened recently. So what do you make of that? Uh, well, it's just what we've already been saying. Uh, I don't think it's as radical as some people are, are no. making out, because uh, if students still want to choose a particular pathway according to their interests, then they can. And if that is the notated Western tradition, then they can primarily focus on that. On the other hand, if they they want to explore other avenues, they can. So I don't see why that's a negative thing but what is negative is and I don't want to pick on any particular people but what is negative is when musicologists go onto social media and say that anybody who's defending music theory is a white white supremacist white supremacist right so this is but uh, Twitter encourages people to um, say things like that yeah I mean it's funny that 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 statement that that tweet by um, Kelly well, well, yeah, okay. So this is this is the thing. If that were on Facebook and it was between friends, I'd think that maybe one should respect anonymity. But the fact is that that's yeah. a public that's a public that's mm-hmm. a publication. It's a public statement, so we're able to actually talk yeah. about it. So this is Kelly Heiser who tweeted. Um, I don't know the exact words of the tweet, but essentially, if you're what was it? If you're defending, if you defend mu- music theory, you are a white supremacist. Yeah. Um, so. And she went on to have a very heated discussion with all sorts of people from Barbara Eichner onwards to um, about about this this idea. And you know, she makes some completely valid points about the institution of the university being based in um, well imperial colonialism, it being a white institution, traditionally speaking, and music theory, which for her, I guess, as an American, I think she's American. It can be equated with music analysis, which, again, traditionally speaking, has largely been practiced by white figures. Now, it's an exaggeration, of course, to immediately uh, raise the temperature in that way to invoke a kind of term. It's almost like um, Godwin's Law, you know, invoking Hitler, just kind of shuts down the possibility of any kind of meaningful conversation as soon as you expand the terms to that um, level. Um, so I'm not sure how helpful it is. It's also I'm not sure how much how constructive it is in terms of offering a kind of a route out of white supremacy. Um, but then again, it's a short little tweet, so I'm not sure how much one can accomplish in in tweets like that. But but nevertheless, that kind of provocation quickly sets people off again into this is this is emerging as a kind of a theme of this episode. Again, it sets them off into tribes and into territories, which from which they can kind of lob grenades at each other. Um, quite comfortably without those grenades ever kind of having a direct impact 
Yeah, so I mean, no, those are those are basically my thoughts too. Uh, it's curious how this this series of um, similar musicological events, a curious series of musicological events, all happened around the same time. Um, yeah, around these topics. What was the one you were about to mention? Um, so this is um, so the privilege walk is this concept whereby. It's an exercise you, you supposedly do in class, um, but you can also do it at home as a kind of a thought experiment, which I suppose is probably the, the place that has the most um, impact insofar as people will read about these privilege walks and, and kind of run them through in their heads much more than they will actually experience one in person. Um, so a privilege walk is a list of questions, and depending on your answers to those questions, you take a step forward or a step back. And the idea of this privilege walk is that it will show your privilege to you in ways that might have been kind of invisible uh, otherwise. So let me just read out some examples. So Kendra Leonard, who's a musicologist and music theorist, um, took on this, this idea of a privilege walk and expanded it to music. So here's what she says. Many of you are familiar with the idea of the privilege walk in which a mediator reads statements relating to privilege and asks participants to step forward or backwards to indicate the relative positions in society as defined through those privileges. So, for example, here are some of the statements in a general privilege walk. One, if you identify as a white male, take one step forward. Two, if there have been times in your life when you skipped a meal because there was no food in the house, take one step backward. If you have visible or invisible disabilities, take one step backward. If you grew up in an urban setting, take one step backward. If you have ever felt passed over for an employment position based on your gender, ethnicity, age or sexual orientation, take one step backward. If you were born in the United States, take, take one step forward. If English is your first language, take one step forward, and so on and on and on. Um, so Leonard's version of this in terms of music goes something like this. So number one, if your parents, guardians could pay for your instruments or you had use of a free school instrument, step forward. Two, if you had access to a professional quality instrument before age 18, step forward. If you experienced sexual harassment by a music colleague, step backwards. If you could afford to travel more than four hours for post-secondary school auditions, step forward. You went to summer music programs, step forward, and so on and on. And there's a total of 50 um, statements like that. So the idea is, by the end of it, you'll have a sense of how your privilege, if you're doing this in a classroom setting, relates to the supposed privilege, at least as judged by these criteria, of the people around you. And it seems to me, at least, it's some kind of a illuminating uh, illustration of certain uh, experiences you've had in your life um, but this this kind of privilege walk statement thing has really raised the hackles of all sorts of academics so for example Ian Pace added an addendum to his letter which was responding to the Charlotte Gill article annotation and he says since the first since first placing this letter online I've been alerted to two relevant phenomena the Department of Music of Harvard University have now removed a requirement to study theory or Western art music history from their core curriculum, which is what you were just talking about. And then he says, worse, Texan musicologist Kendra Leonard has created a privilege walk for musicians. And he says, this is a way of publicly shaming students who, for example, were taught music theory, care about notated music, can read more than one clef, or had advanced instruction in a foreign language. These are all points um, that relate to one of, one of the statements in the music privilege walk. He says, it's not clear from Leonard's biography if she teaches regularly at an institution, but certainly such privilege walks exist elsewhere in the US. So this, again, like you say, there's been a kind of conflagration of all sorts of different musicological and public musicological um, debates, articles, 
letters, responses to articles, um, petitions, uh, provocations like this one. And they all seem to be speaking to the same kind of tensions between privilege and power, I guess, and also, in more simple terms, between, I guess, um, ideas and identity, um, which is a typical kind of strand of debate which runs through the kind of humanities and culture over the last few decades. So the, the struggle over um, identity politics, who gets to participate and why, and then ideas existing in a kind of a supposedly pure realm at a remove from, from those identities. And not to belabor the point, but it seems the reality seems to me to exist somewhere in between these two poles. Um, there isn't a true meritocracy. Of course there's not. Your identity does determine how much you get to access things and participate in things. But at the same time, there is a realm of ideas which do, speaking as a white male, I get to say this, but do kind of transcend identity to some degree. So I'm, I'm just not sure that there's much of a debate to be had here beyond the struggles to um, expand and reframe the intellectual premise of certain academic subjects. But what do you make of this music privilege walk? Um, I think ostensibly it, it's a good idea to um, make us aware of our, our relative um, place within a group of people where some of some people are coming from more privileged backgrounds than others and it ostensibly helps understanding. I think also though there's the very clear danger here that it marks some people out, say somebody coming from a relatively privileged background, it might mark them out as a, an object of resentment for others if they are perceived as being different and it's sort of an inversion here whereby that person, let's say that hypothetical person is can be kind of ostracized can be resented it's legitimate to resent them because they've had all the breaks in life and so on it seems like it's uh, got some definite problems there i mean um that's the phrase that harold bloom uses for um people who want to um challenge the canonical view of history isn't it he calls them the school of resentment yeah i think he's following like nietzsche uh, in using that that particular term but it's a moral moralizing of history it's a projection of a, our moral biases onto history and it's a raising of our um, moral agenda up to a transcendental principle mm -hmm. the fact is though that in art as in many other areas there is an inherent elitism the people who are outstanding and well and again this isn't this doesn't go without saying this is just my view the people who do distinguish themselves are frequently more talented in some ways than others doesn't necessarily mean they've come from more privileged backgrounds but there is a hierarchy it, it, there, there's not necessarily a democracy in art that's what i think gore vidal said that art isn't a democracy like there so there is elitism inherent in it and there's elitism in the very fact that we we are inspired let's say as musicologists to study particular people or particular music groups or, or performers or whatever who have distinguished themselves in so doing they I don't know it's not just to do with social processes there's something inherent there which has made them appear hierarchically superior to other people who are doing the same thing so there's always going to be grounds for resentment we mm. can fire at them the charge that they somehow had some privileges or that it's unfair that they're getting attention that others aren't but uh, for me, we have to believe in these values. We have to, I think, believe that there can be exceptions. There can be individuals who, who exceed what other people are doing and so on. That's yeah, I mean, 
I, I agree up to a point, but I guess you could flip it around and say that the school of resentment operates in both directions. So there's a kind of an implicit resentment towards those who don't belong in certain groups, so minorities and so on. And there's also an implicit moral code being raised to a transcendental principle. And from the perspective of Harold Bloom and others, it's just it's just implicit. It's just not explicit in the way that it might be for those who are struggling to gain entry to these kinds of um, areas. Do you know what I mean? So there's, there's yes, a, absolutely. Yeah. So there's always a kind of a, a morality to aesthetics, and there's always a kind of a, an inbuilt um, hierarchy and, and kind of resentment in both directions. So I guess things like the music privilege walk are just attempts to um, rebalance the scales a little bit. And um, so, right. so to instill resentment in the other direction. Yeah. You know, so it, it's <laughs> sort of like an effort towards transparency, but, um, like the, the question of institutions is really important here. I think the institutions that form around practices, and very often within such institutions, there are kind of relationships of power which exclude certain people or certain groups, and often it's sort of a, at a very discrete level. So we should always be on the lookout for that. I, I do agree that the resentment thing goes both ways. Mm. There was some uh, quotation I heard in a an interview at Bulas where he's going, yes, these traditions are elitist, but we should have elitist things that we can, I don't know, cultivate people towards. Like if you're going to the opera or some other type of thing like that, you have to cultivate a certain knowledge and enthusiasm for it, and then it becomes more rewarding, and it gives us something culturally to kind of aspire towards yeah i mean and by the same token you know you, you were talking earlier about how in the harvard curriculum you can still study notation if you want to but i guess the the counter response to that would be less and less or fewer and fewer people will want to study notation because it's not something which has a lot of kind of presence in society so therefore we should positively discriminate for it and promote it within these kinds of um curricula in order to you know safeguard its place in in culture so i agree that um elitism of if you want to call it elitism um you know a social structure which which does kind of positively discriminate on behalf of forms of music which are might seem culturally prestigious and prominent but actually in terms of market presence have a very small place and i think the kind of elitism which promotes that kind of music as a kind of a historical legacy which is valuable and worth preserving is an elitism I can kind of get behind um, you know th there is a kind of an elephant in the room in all these debates which many people pay attention to but sometimes it gets a little bit kind of ignored which is that the music which seems to be in power and seems to have cultural prestige i.e. western classical music dead white composers and so on even though it has had a lot of cultural prestige and has had a lot of um, kind of cultural victories over the past few centuries it is a kind of a minority practice at the same time it is a kind of a marginal practice and therefore you have this kind of weird situation where the, the powerful form or what seems like the powerful form within music is also the least powerful or one of the least powerful in some respects so that kind of further complicates this whole debate because you get these people arguing for diversity um, for an expanded curriculum or expanded canon or even for a canon which totally rejects the premise of the teleology of Western music history. But in doing so, in a way, they're possibly skewing things towards privilege. How so? 
because they're skewing things towards things which have a strong presence in culture through their market presence. They mightn't have as strong a presence in the university, or at least in some corners mm-hmm. of the university, but they have a massive... You know, Ian Pace always talks about this. Popular music is framed as a kind of a, a minority, as a kind of a you know, a subaltern presence within the university, but actually it's it's hegemonic in, in yeah, society. So we, can, we cannot escape it. If you go to a shopping centre yeah. or turn on a radio or if you go to a cafe, it's always there. It's, yeah. uh, it and takes it, over the whole... Yeah, yeah and there's a generational drift towards studying that music within the university. And, you know, rightly so, in many respects, of course, because it's an interesting cultural um, entity in its own in its own right. But at the same time, there is this other side to that whole drift towards that music, which comes at the cost of studying um, Western classical music in many cases. Unfortunately, it does. It is a bit of a zero-sum game in universities in terms of how much time you have to dedicate to certain musics. You don't have infinite time. You don't have infinite student desire to look at X, Y, and Z. Broadly speaking, you have to let focus in on things. You have to kind of exclude certain things. And I guess the concern of people and why this becomes so tribalistic and so heated, this whole debate, is because there is something being lost at the moment. And as progressive and as inclusive as um, someone like Madrid's position might look, in some other important ways, it's actually shutting down inclusivity and it's actually shutting down um, history as a kind of a rich tapestry of um, long-standing cultural legacies. Right. And I think, like it or not, basically any artist who has excelled has done so through wanting to achieve what historical figures have done or to engage with it and to to replicate it or something like Mm -hmm. that so trying to equalize and neutralize that i think might have a negative effect on artistic production too on on the future artists who are going to emerge and who are going to become uh, topics for musicology in their own right. Maybe mm-hmm. that's stating things over dramatically, but yeah, I, no, I still I still think that the attention should be given sometimes to these artistic creators who are going to come along. They they do what they do through engaging with tradition, through being inculcated with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also it, think, it, well, coming off at that point, expanding on that, I think there's a danger in servicing student needs because students don't know what they want. Right. You know, it, it's it's so dangerous to frame music degrees as a purely utilitarian exercise in giving students what they want and in kind of attracting them to you on the basis that you will provide them with classes that they think they want. When actually, yes. the most rewarding experiences are often students taking classes that they weren't aware they had any interest in and coming across repertoires and ideas and concepts which they never would have given the choice themselves. So the whole idea of making elective um, music history and so on it seems to me to be um, a little bit dangerous. Now it's time for research in the round where we each pick out a notable publication or conference announcement in the field of musicology. Um, so I'll start this time. I wanted to draw our listeners' attention to the current issue of music analysis. I hope that's not too ideologically loaded. It's the March 2017 issue, and it's a special issue on popular music. So there's a whole range of articles here. For example, Brett Clement has an article on Frank Zappa's Chord Bible. There is an article by Ben Curry on tonal space in the music of Muddy Waters. 
There's an article by Adam Ritchie on the pump-up in pop music of the 1970s and 1980s, and there's articles on uh, sexual subversion in suede and syncopation and groove in uh, dance music as well. So it looks like there's a lot of interesting stuff there. Great. I, I also wanted to draw attention to a new, new issue of a journal, in, in my case, Music Theory Online, which typically has a broad range of topics in its latest issues. So there's articles on George Crumb, there's articles on tonal principles in music from jazz to rock to uh, Rameau. Uh, there's also book reviews of Kofi Gawa's book, The African Imagination of Music, and Lawrence Kramer's book, The Thought of Music. So it looks like an interesting issue. I also wanted very quickly just to mention um, the fact that La Revue de Musicologie, which is um, a well-known French journal, um, has now accepting articles in English, as Ralph Locke pointed out on the American Musicological Society's email list. Uh, so he has an article in the latest journal, um, and there's also articles on subjects such as chanson from the 16th century, Ralph Locke's article on um, exoticism in Metastasio's Libretti, and an article by Jean-Christophe Branger on orchestral music between the wars in Paris. So it looks like an interesting um, endeavour, and actually that possibly brings up something which we might have discussed uh, in the main body of this episode, which is the idea of language and how that figures into privilege and inclusion and exclusion in musicology. Oh, that's a, that's another can of worms, all right. It is, because we've been talking about English language studies in general, and sometimes the language, sometimes the idea of expanding the, the curriculum to include different languages is not really acknowledged. Instead, there's a kind of an Anglophone imperialism. Right, it's, it's true, but um, you can, I mean, I'm subscribed to the Musée Sorbonne French Musicology mailing list, and it's interesting sometimes when I have these mailing list emails coming in that some of the topics are kind of replicating themselves. Uh, so some of the same debates are going on in France, at least. That's it for this episode of Talking Musicology. Thanks very much for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.